Welcome to God Pod. This is a podcast from St. Paul's Theological Centre in London, based at Holy Trinity Brompton. Mike Lloyd and Jane Williams join me, Graham Tomlin, in talking about theology, life, God, and just about everything else. Hello everybody, and we're here for another Godpod. I think this is Godpod number 15. We have the tea being poured here, the biscuits being handed out, and it looks very kind of English and um, civilised, doesn't it? It does. The two being virtually synonymous, of course. (laughs) You think so? (laughs) Well, I'm not sure the Welsh and the Irish here would quite agree with that. Or indeed the Chinese and the Russians. Or indeed the Chinese and the Russians. But anyway, uh, we have here Mike. Hello, Mike. Hello. And Jane as well. Hello. And uh, we also have, um, yeah, Sean, who's just been pouring out our tea for us. So thank you, Sean. That's very good. So slurping noises now, which is we're about to eat. <laughs> this time we are discussing China. Jane and her husband Rowan has been visiting China, which has been very interesting. We're discussing Russia, the Alpha Course in the Orthodox Church. We'll be looking at whether God has thumbs. And we'll also think about vicars visiting embarrassing situations. Jane's just got back from China. And it'd be great to hear a little bit about China and what you found there. And um, well, it was in, about China. It was really intriguing. It has to be said. I went in, in one of the many hotels that we stayed in on our trip. I bumped into an American businessman in the lift, who asked me what I was doing there. So I said I was visiting Christians in China, and he said I didn't know there were any. <laughs> which is a reaction you get from quite a lot of people. Or if they think there are Christians in China, they think they're all in the underground churches. Yeah. Um, whereas we were visiting the official recognized state church which is called the china christian council Mm. which um is a forcibly amalgamated interdenominational church they call it post-denominational so they have to merge the denominations into one church the the government um decided that if they were going to allow christians to exist at all they were all going to have to be one one church under state um regulation Mm. shall we say and that includes all the Protestant churches, but not the Roman Catholics, who are recognised as a different religion mm, yeah. entirely, which um, is ironic in itself. So don't they have to be Catholic rather than Roman Catholic? They have to be Catholic. They have to be. Um, they have to follow what's called the three self principle, mm. which means self sufficiency, and um, independence, and self finance. Mm. Yes. Um, so not um, to, to feel that they owe primary allegiance to anything outside China. It's very, very determinedly Chinese church. Both. God is not thought of as being outside China. Not at all, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it was a, it's a very, very different, uh, different approach and very difficult to assess, really. And obviously a lot of people do feel that um, the official church in China is quite compromised, that it does allow the state to dictate things mm. that perhaps um, Christians shouldn't be comfortable about. But on the other hand, the caricature that there are no real Christians in that church is just complete rubbish. One of the things I did was to meet with um, women pastors in all the different centres we went to, where we were just talking about prayer, about um, Christian service to society, um, about what you do with people when they're converted, which they are in great numbers in the official churches still in China. One small country church I was um, talking to, they expect 30 people a day roughly, to be converted. So, right, this is within the official church in China? Yeah, within the official church in China. Because And, and the Christians, I mean, people who come to these Christians for care don't realise it's an official compromised yeah. church. They feel they're being ministered to with the love of God. Yes. And, so how um, does that happen, with 30 people a day being 
converted in a church? That's just, is that just by contact through the community? It or? is, yes. I mean, the, the, the Christians that we met love God. <laughs> and I think when people love God, it's actually terribly infectious. Yeah. Um, and they, they are prepared to, to demonstrate that in words, but also in action. The church in China, the official church, undertakes a lot of social action, which is partly funded by the government, interestingly. The government is prepared to channel money through church organisations for things like clinics and um, uh, orphanages and feeding stations and that kind of thing. And it won a lot of credibility during the harsher days of persecution, didn't it, under uh, during the Cultural Revolution, for instance, when it stood by people who weren't Christians, who were you know, in prison, it would help them with their families, yeah. help feed the families and, and yeah. support them and that sort of thing. So it won a lot of credibility, I think, during that period. And yeah. most of the, the the ageing leadership now did spend those years of the Cultural Revolution in exile of one kind or another. Um, they were sent to factories or they were sent to labour camps or they were sent to work in the fields. Um, yeah. And if you think that that is actually within the lifetime of most people of our middle yeah, age, right. yeah, <laughs> um, their families were all affected by that. I met a a woman who told me a very moving story about how her parents, who were Christian pastors, were sent to work in the fields and the extraordinary poverty of their childhood Um, and how, you know, presumably the state assumed that such treatment would make people lose their faith, but actually it strengthened her family's faith. Her family felt they were utterly dependent upon God and brought their children up Mm. firmly believing Mm. in that. So it was really, really difficult to assess. I mean, like any of these official trips, obviously we know that what we saw was staged, but but that is the case wherever. And did you get to meet many of the government officials and people in in charge of religion in the country? Yes, we met a lot of them. We met them at every single centre we went to and Mm. had conversations with them, which we raised issues of human rights. and got not terribly straight answers. Oh, but oh. The, but part of the problem, of course, nowadays is that one can't, as a British person, go in um, feeling that right is entirely on our side. Every time you raise issues of human rights abroad now, people say to yeah. us, Abu Ghraib oh. Prison and yeah, Guantanamo Bay. Bay and don't exactly have clean hands. Yes, anymore. exactly. Yeah. It does make it very much harder, yeah, actually. Sure. <laughs> yeah. And uh, the issue about China, I always think, is, is you hear vastly differing num- you know, estimates of the numbers you of do. Chinese Christians. Mm. And um, did you get any sense of, of, of what that is? Because I, I guess, as you say, you, you're dealing mainly with the official church and obviously there's a whole underground church and maybe no one knows quite how many Christians there are. There, no, I'm sure they don't. I mean, the, the, fish, the official numbers are still really quite startling. Oh. Um, and, and Startlingly large. Startlingly mean. large and the state organs recognize that more and more people are converting to Christianity every day. And interestingly, a lot of the state officials were prepared to talk about a moral and spiritual vacuum in people's lives yep. in a in a country that is growing vastly wealthier, very, yeah, very fast, but That's quite right. unevenly. So yeah. some people very, very rich and some people still yeah. very, very poor. But that sense of not knowing what life is for... Yeah. Um, that actually um, makes the state quite interested in what religion yeah. might have to offer. And in a period of great social change, with, yeah. with, with a huge amount of change going on in cities. Cities are remarkable in China now, aren't they? I mean, the, 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 the profile of the city, all the huge high-rise buildings. Oh, I mean, Shanghai is the think. most fabulously glittering city. Yeah. It really is. And, and very, very westernised in some ways, but with this wonderful sort of underlying Chineseness that makes it a bit really... I mean, I, it was the most fabulous city. Yeah. And likewise, Beijing, all the traffic. Yeah. Teaches you to pray harder. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's right. yeah. 
Yeah, but but equally, it. a lot of poverty still in the country. We saw a little bit of that. And so um, China is both developing and developed at the same time in one country, raising all kinds of problems and issues for them. So it was a really, really fascinating visit. And I suppose one of the things I really want to say to people is, in this country is go on praying for the Chinese Christians, but don't, don't sort of automatically rule out the official Christian church okay. who are okay. actually doing some wonderful things. I think we need to pray for them to be braver. And one of the questions we asked the church leadership wherever we went is, are you trying to make contacts with the underground mm. unregistered churches? Mm. Um, and, and the answer we got was sometimes yes and sometimes no. And obviously some of the underground unregistered churches are quite insane. Sure. Yeah. Um, but some of them aren't. They just don't want that kind of yeah. state control. So yeah. it's a much more mixed picture than, than I assumed when I went out, I think. Lots of the same issues arising as you get in the whole of church history, aren't there? Yeah. I mean, uh, the involvement of the mm. state in the politics of the church, bringing it, forcing them all to, into one denomination. Mm. And well, you, you, reminiscent of Constantine, mm. kind of yeah. trying to impose unity on, on the church. Um, and the tension between the underground church and the open church is... You, you always get that when you've had persecution. Yeah. Uh, you get that people yep. coming out of that who have been more compromised than others. Sure. Yes. Although Selznitsyn would say, actually, we're all compromised yes. by yeah. uh, the Soviet yeah. system and yeah. that kind of thing. That was a big issue in the, the emergence of the early church from, from persecution, wasn't it? You know, what Absolutely. should you allow back into fellowship, those who, yes, who, who compromised their out, faith yes. under, yeah. under persecution? Yeah. Mm. Or should you not? And there were kind of rigorous forms of Christian faith and more sort of mixed form, and, yes. and that was a point Augustine was very keen on, wasn't he? So, yeah. you know, well, actually, none of us are pure in this, this, this matter. None of us are uncompromised. None of us are actually have clean hands. Yes, the yeah. same point Solzhenitsyn was making. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was in China in 1986 and, and went to see some of the open churches there um, and a seminary as well <coughs> and met a, a young guy who whose parents had been struggled during the Cultural Revolution, i.e. accused of ideological crimes, yeah. and paraded through the streets with placards saying what those ideolo ideological crimes were, which were, that they were Christians, basically. Mm -hmm. And they'd all been sent off to re-education camp. And then after the Cultural Revolution, things had got a bit easier. And, and he, this chap had got settled down and got married. And, um, and then the government told him that he was going back to his hometown to um, take a particular job there. Um, and they moved him, but they wouldn't move his wife. Mm. Um, and uh, I said, well, you can, you can visit her. He said, no, I, I never get more than a day off. I, I can't get there and back in the day. I've seen her once in four years. Mm. Mm. I, I live as a single man. Mm. Um, so one does see something, I know that's 20 years ago, but uh, one does see something of what these people have yes. to struggle with and yes. go through, which mm. we don't even kind of begin to think in those terms. Yeah. Really. Sure. Yeah. Well, fascinating. Very interesting. And yeah. bits of it did remind me of Russia. I mean, yeah. of, of Russia sort of okay. 20 years ago. Yeah. Speaking of which. Speaking of which, yeah. Have you been anywhere recently? Uh, <laughs> I've just had a little trip to Moscow. A, a Russia. <laughs> as it happens, you know. Yeah, <laughs> yeah we had a very interesting trip. Um, this was, uh, was uh, the Russian Orthodox Church is um, just beginning to show quite a bit of interest in in, um, in the Alpha Course. I think they've heard about it. And I want to see people in Russia... Um, in the Orthodox Church have, have realized that it is, this thing exists. It's being used by a number of Protestant churches in, in Russia. Um, and they've just begun to, to use it within the Orthodox context. And so um, so our trip was really just to begin to, a conversation with some uh, Orthodox priests and bishops and, and others. And um, the, uh, the Orthodox 
um, an Orthodox Archbishop who is uh, uh, head of the mission department of the Orthodox Church has just given permission for a sort of trial to be run, a kind of alpha project, as it were, um, to see how it will fit within the Orthodox context. And so our... Um, uh, obviously, it was really just to explore that and to try and help to explain and explore some of the theological basis for for Alpha and to um, see whether that fitted with orthodoxy and to, um, uh, to, to, to to work alongside those who are already trying it out within the orthodox context. So it's fascinating, really. Um, so what are the issues for them? What do they find difficult about Alpha or... Well, I guess the whole emphasis upon... Well, it's a very interesting topic, actually, because the, the emphasis upon the Holy Spirit, the emphasis mm. upon particular sort of manifestations of the Spirit that you get on an Alpha weekend or um, in, in times of um, prayer or ministry on Alpha, is something that they're not used to. And um, they sort of see it as sort of neo-Pentecostal. We spent a lot of time saying, no, we're not Pentecostals, we're Anglicans. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it was something slightly strange for them. But, um, but, of course, historically, it's very interesting because the... Within the Eastern churches, the Holy Spirit's had a much stronger presence than in the Western churches. They've yes, always I, said ours I, was very deficient, haven't they, compared with theirs. So, yes. And you have that very nice little phrase in one of your booklets, Jane, don't you? The one on the Trinity, about the, you can see the strength of the Holy Spirit in, in the Eastern tradition by looking at their iconography. Yes. Uh, where you have Rubarev's um, uh, iconography, where there are uh, three, three people three sitting people. around at yes. the table, whereas... <clears throat> in your great phrase, uh, you said most Western art depictions of the Holy Spirit are two men and a bird. Slightly unfair because it's probably of the Baptist of Jesus, but, I, but it does make the point yeah. very, very well. That's right. Forcibly. And I think that's, you know, it's an interesting th- thing that, um, that you know, historically, there's an awful lot in Orthodox mm. history and theology about about the Spirit and the, strength, really. the Spirit's effect upon a, a person. And you know you can look in some medieval Orthodox texts and some more some more recent 19th century ones as well, where Orthodox theologians are writing quite um, quite graphically about what happens when the Spirit falls upon a, a person, and, and the descriptions look pretty much like an Alpha Weekend to me. You know, <laughs> um, so um, so I think some of the things we were trying to do was to, to, to try and say, well, look, you know, this is this is an area where actually you Orthodox have been much better than we have in the West. We've tended mm. to downplay the Spirit. Mm-hmm. Try to kind of we have a slightly subordinationist approach with spirits from the sort of least important person of the Trinity, and we subordinated the spirit in, in all kinds of ways. And, and this is something we're just rediscovering for ourselves. It's actually there in your history. Um, having said that, I think you know the current Orthodox maybe don't, don't um, immediately recognise that. And it may be I had a very interesting conversation with one um, one man when I, I was there who, who's. Whose take on it was was, was this that, that that under the years of under the Soviet years in in Russia, um, the, the Soviets, the Communist Party, basically were quite keen that the, the Orthodox Church should be, um, let's put it bluntly, as dull as possible, mm-hmm. um, and didn't have anything really of, of the excitement and the, um, uh, the, the, the sort of power of God present because they didn't really want anyone to go to them, um, and and it may be that a whole generation of Orthodox have grown up thinking well that's what that's what orthodoxy is. Um, there has also always been a slight 
um, resistance within orthodoxy to converts. Mm. So, so why would you want to do missionary work? Sure, because that's right. yeah. you have to be born orthodox, don't yeah, you? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yet they're in a situation now where it's being forced upon them, isn't indeed, it? Indeed, we all and are. Well, indeed. <laughs> yeah. And a sense that in, that in all of, a lot of Russia, especially the young people, are just not attracted to the orthodox church a lot of the time, same as what we're finding in the West sometimes, indeed, sometimes as well. Traditional so, churches. So, yeah. you know, we found it quite a, an interesting dynamic where a lot of the older people were saying, um, you know, why do we need some, something from outside? Can't we have something that's properly Russian and Orthodox? And why do we need this thing that's from the Anglican Church and it's from the West and that's just, it's not going to fit with us? Um, to which a lot of the younger people were saying, well, number one, you know, we're not reaching the young people, our own contemporaries, and B, number two, if we had a nice Russian Orthodox course, we'd use it, but we haven't got one. Mm. <laughs> so why not use this one, adapt it for the Rush for the Orthodox context and and, um, and take it further. So, Because, um, again, I would guess that focusing around a meal would be a very effective yeah. way of reaching... Yeah, um, well, right. pretty everywhere, pretty well pretty every well, culture. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Meals except, are... Except in, increasingly in Britain. Mm. Fewer and fewer people have meals together, yeah, which is one right. of the things that makes Alpha countercultural yeah. in Britain. Well, exactly. But yeah. people see the attraction yeah. of that yeah. and see what it does. And that's why so many Alpha groups want to stay together, because yeah. they yeah. have been companions, quite exactly. literally. Yeah, that's right. And that idea together. that, you know, the heart of evangelism is meal, community, friendship, mm. um, the, the experience of God, worship. Um, all of those things that are at the heart of, uh, of Alpha are things that can be translated into any context, really. So, uh, so yeah, we will see see where it goes. But it was a very interesting time. Similar problems with the traffic. In yeah, Moscow. We had a slightly bizarre experience where we were stuck in this jam, actually nothing moving at all. In which case, the driver decided to go onto the pavement. Yeah, got halfway up the pavement, sort of jammed at the bottom of the car on, on, on the pavement. It wasn't moving. <laughs> so rather than you know what I would do at that point is just sort of back off gently. Think bad idea. Um, he just got us all to get out of the car and just and push it on. <laughs> so, so we then went on the pavement around the corner, down onto a, to a road, went up this road the, the wrong way, up a one-way street for about half a mile. <laughs> At great pace. So I was sort of, you know, um, glad to be out of the car. Heart in my mouth. But um, we also went to Red Square, which was, um, which again was very interesting. You were thinking about your comments about the Cultural Revolution, mm. and one of the Christians we were with was talking about having been taken there as a child to see all the. The, you know, the nuclear weapons and the troops all mm-hmm. walking uh-huh. past the Politburo mm-hmm. in, in, in Red Square, and she remembers that very vividly. And, of course, that's part of the past now. And you're just aware of these huge changes in in the world yes. over the past 20 years or so mm-hmm. that all that's changed. Mm-hmm. And right. now you see Lenin's mausoleum on one side and all the very expensive, smart shops of the shopping arcade on the other side. Yeah. So yeah. capitalism and, and communism right next door to each other. Or rather dead communism, actually, is it? Right. Of which Lenin is a fairly good song for So anyway, that's um, uh, just our travels. We'll be on but your back. travels, I've been holding the fort, doing all the work back here. Right? Oh, yes. but is that really back. true? Don't <laughs> <laughs> feel sorry for me or anything. Okay, uh, thanks. Okay, we won't. <laughs> well, we have a question which we're going to um, uh, just look at, which comes from... Um, uh, well, yeah, it comes from someone in HTB, and the question is this. In calling when you tried doors and they open and you felt god guide you each step to them but then don't know what you think about the the door that's opened what should you do why do doors open why i suppose the question is you know when you pray for something you um you push on a door you try to see is this what the way god wants it to be and then the door opens is that necessarily god god guiding you towards that or is it not i think that's the question it's a very interesting question, isn't it? And the trouble is that it's a question where you want to get hold of the question and find out a bit more of the detail. Because 
if all the guidance up to the point of the door opening seems to have been prayed through and directed by God, what is it that's hold, that's, mm. that doesn't mm. feel right now? Mm. Um, so it's quite hard to give a sort of generalised answer mm. until we find out what... It may be that it doesn't, it's not that it doesn't feel right now, but that something has objectively stopped it from happening. And you thought all along that it was what God was leading you to do and suddenly you mm. stymied and can't do it anymore. Um, which is a very frustrating and, and, and difficult mm. and upsetting mm. experience, I think. So are there, are there guidelines on calling? I mean, how do you advise someone who's trying to kind of just discern what the way ahead is and putting doors and some open, some closed? Any I particular well, I think, I think advice? That this, is, this is but one of the criteria, isn't it, is whether, whether the thing is, you know, doable. Yeah. Um, and that is one of the, the yeah. guidance criteria. But then there are others. I mean, if the thing that opens up for you is, you know, robbing a bank, then there are other criteria that <laughs> suggest <laughs> it probably might not be a good idea. Mm. Um, so there are ethical criteria. Uh, there are um, Also, I think, and this is, I think, often got almost exactly wrong by Christians. Um, we, we tend to think that if there's something we would really absolutely and utterly hate to do, that's probably what God would ask us to do, which is an odd view of God, really. It's rather mm. like saying, I, I knew that you were a hard man, <laughs> reaping where mm. you do not sow. Mm. Um, normally, a good manager will use people in accordance with their own passions and, oh. um, yep. and, and abilities. Yep. And, and it, so if there's something that you really want to do, then... Uh, in all other things being equal, that's mm. a pointer towards what God is calling you to do. So there are lots of different criteria. I think, and I think the other thing about guidance and trying to seek guidance is we often see it as a problem. We see it as a, you know, dear, I've got to take this choice and this decision, and, you know, if, if only this would get sorted out and get out of the way and I can get on with my life. Whereas uh, often it does seem to me that, that, that guidance is not just about finding the right answer. It's about, it's actually one of the chief ways in which God draws us closer to himself, actually the process of mm. Uh, of going through the decision is a crucial part of the, the, the thing. And, and but in that process, uh, we begin to learn to recognize the voice of God a little bit better. Um, so, you know, guidance isn't just a problem and to, to which we need to find the answer, actually. It's, it's one of the main ways in which God teaches us to recognize his His voice. And, and therefore, I, mean, I often thought that that passage in John's Gospel where Jesus talks about, you know, my, my sheep hear my voice and um, that sense that part of guidance is about learning to recognize God's voice as opposed to all the other voices that we hear around us and there are so many voices in the world and there are our friends and our own imagination and conscience and everything else that's just that and how do you recognize God's voice out of all of that cacophony of noise that is around us all the time and that seems to be something you know which happens through a number of different ways. I mean, it happens through scripture. It happens through kind of just just getting to know scripture and recognizing the kind of things that God does and likes and says. Um, but it also happens through the experience of trying and making choices and getting them wrong sometimes and getting them right occasionally as well. And therefore, the pr- so therefore there's a, there's an approach I think to guidance which actually sees it as a positive means by which an opportunity to actually get to know God and God's will better. And so. Um, so, you know, it, it, as doors open, just the fact that the door opens doesn't necessarily mean it's the right thing to do. You've still got to ask those questions. All the ones sorts of other questions. Um, and still try to discern, is this actually what God is? And I think we, we, we have a very functional approach with this. We, you know, we want to get the right answer. And, yeah. and therefore, anything that stops us or delays us getting the right answer 
is is a frustration. But if yeah. you uh, for, for God, as I say, as you were saying, it's it's more of a kind of relational thing, mm. um, rather than uh, rather than a, a functional getting it right kind of thing. Yeah. And and maybe. <laughs> Uh, he's more interested in the process than yeah. he is in, in the result. Uh, Mother Teresa used to say that nothing done in love is ever wasted. Yeah. Mm. And therefore, if you've been trying doors and you've been thinking it's going that way and suddenly you find it's not, yeah. it doesn't mean that all the previous thing has been wasted. Yeah. Because yeah. faithfulness is actually more important than accomplishment. Because presumably God could, if he wanted to, just tell us what to do, just like that. Yeah. Um, he could write things on walls or he could yeah. just give us strange messages through... Whatever means it, it was, or he could text us or something to tell us <laughs> <laughs> this is the answer. I'm pretty sure God can text. I'm sure, but he he doesn't do that. Now it's not that he can't do that. It's, it's more that he chooses not to. It seems to me. He's got big thumbs, of course. <laughs> the big phone. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, God's thumbs. That's an interesting point. Um, I, I suppose the other thing is that that we make ourselves feel very anxious by feeling there's only one right way to go, and that if we don't spot it and get onto that. Yeah. Roller coaster, yeah. it were in time, then then we'll frustrate God's yeah. mission. And I'm I personally don't think that it's possible to frustrate yeah. God's purposes, <laughs> um, not ultimately. Um, I, I agree with that. Although I think it's it's pretty tough when you think God has led you to a particular yeah. end, and everything seems to stack up that way, yeah. and you get a job or whatever, and then you, you're absolutely completely miserable in this job, and it tears you apart and you think well does God want me to be torn about and miserable in this job yeah. or have I misheard him or yeah. or what I, I mean, it, it is tough isn't yeah, it it is tough and I, I do think that being torn apart and miserable isn't absolutely certainly a sign that God doesn't want you to be there no. um, I think there are some good stories in the Bible that would suggest that sometimes being torn apart and miserable is because people don't want you to be doing what God wants you to do mm-hmm. um but, but is it necessarily a sign that God does want no, to do indeed. that? No, <laughs> indeed. No, indeed, that's quite right. But I, I also think that one of the other resources we get given in, in guidance is each other. Yes. Um, and that if you really don't know how to make up your mind, people who know you well are part of what God gives you mm. to help you decide. To go back to your earlier point, Jen, I think it's an important one to make, isn't it, that you know, we can feel that you know, there is a, a plan for our lives. God has got this blueprint somewhere in his files that says, you know, you will be doing X at this point of your life and Y at that point of your mm-hmm. life. And, and, and you kind of feel sometimes that you know, if you get it wrong at one point, that's it. Mm-hmm. You're off the blueprint. Mm-hmm. You're off track. Mm-hmm. That's it. God's finished with you. And and, and so and that, that can lead to a lot of anxiety about about choices. And it can be, oh, you know, do I get this choice right? And, and, mm-hmm. and so on. Um, but it seems to me that, again, that's a very sort of mechanical approach to, to guidance. And again, focuses guidance upon getting it right rather than the process by yeah. which actually the main point of guidance is that God wants to bring us closer to himself and that therefore actually even if we do get things wrong and we we, we, we actually make decisions that are that are, we look back and think oh that was a bad one um, that doesn't mean that God has given up on us there's always a way back on track from wherever we end up at and so it's as if there's a whole range of different ways in which we could yeah. reach the final destination God wants for us there is always redemption there's always hope whatever situation we get ourselves into and even if we make bad choices there's always a way back from that it's one of the things i love about working with um, people training for ordained ministry is that when you hear them tell their story of how they've got to this point nearly all of them have resisted it mm-hmm. at various points yeah. and um and at any one point you can see that if they had come into ministry at that point maybe it would have been good and wonderful but by resisting it they've also brought all kinds of other things with them and that actually God doesn't waste things as Mother Teresa says things don't get wasted if if you've said no for reasons that seem good to you at the time 
um, what what happens to you in the meantime will then be used by God as well. Mm-hmm. Um, God is well, really rather good at this the, kind of thing. <laughs> the fragments are gathered up, yes. yes. And, and the plan adapts to where you are, yeah. not to where yeah. he might have liked you to be or you might have liked to be. Um, otherwise... We're all stuffed. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you very much for that um, very interesting discussion. Very good. Uh, Thank you, Graham. Okay. (laughs) Anyone got any good jokes to round off today with? We all look at Mike because usually you've got some jokes. No, they get cut. They get edited out anyway. We'll try one anyway and see if it. No, no, I don't think I have any offhand. I have one. Well, I I, I always get jokes wrong, but I'll I'll, I'll go for it. I'll try it anyway. This is about China, actually. It's about some chap who says, you know, that apparently one in five people in the world are Chinese. That means statistically, in my family, <laughs> out of five of us, um, one of us must be Chinese. It could be my brother Hui Ying, or my sister Tong Fi, or my <laughs> brother Lin Fong, but I think it's probably my brother Colin. <laughs> <laughs> that seems likely, doesn't it? <laughs> the only joke I've heard recently was not particularly good, but it was of. Um, when, well, that's okay. fine. We're not doing good jokes as often. A clergy person who was uh, doing a pastoral visit and just knocked on a door, um, kind of without calling beforehand to, to fix to uh, visits, and uh, there was no reply. So he put a little note through the door, just saying Revelation three twenty. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Uh, and he got a little note put through his letterbox later saying, Genesis 3.10, which was, of course, I heard you and I was afraid because I was naked. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that note, I'm sure that'll probably get edited out. <laughs> anyway, we do hope they all get edited out. Thank you for another GodPod. That was GodPod a podcast from the St. Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org.uk. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try. Until next time, goodbye.